opportunity to put up as a backdrop for my, my talk on art and revolution. Um, this, this painting that I quite like by the, a Russian painter and theatre designer, Konstantin Ewan, um, and he made this painting um, during uh, as a reflection of the October 1917 revolution, um, which is, I think, actually a byproduct of what was meant to be theatre curtains for the Bolshoi theatre at the time. Um, and he did make peace with the Stalinist regime, unfortunately, but I think there are few artworks for me that really can convey that kind of the dynamism and um, of revolution and explosion of art and human potential. Um, so I just wanted to start with, yeah, this painting of the 1917 um, revolution as a bit of a backdrop. Um, so this is probably the, people might argue, say the most famous painting um, of the 21st century, Pablo Picasso's Guernica. Um, and it sits as a massive um, mural-sized painting in, in the Reina Sofia Gallery in Madrid and Spain. And I wanted to use this as an example of why um, I think art resonates not only in specific periods of time reflecting specific events, but for something like um, Guernica across generations of people living under capitalism. Um, and actually, Russian revolutionary Leon Trotsky, um, in debating, um, in a lot of debates with the artists at the time, um, debating the relevance of Dante, um, an Italian um, writer, philosopher and poet, asks, um, how is it possible that there should not be an historical but directly aesthetic relationship between us and a medieval book? This is explained by the fact that in class society, in spite of all its changeability, there are certain common features. Let us take, for instance, such an elementary psychological feeling as fear of death. This feeling is characteristic not only of man, but also of animals. In man, it first found simple articulate expression and later artistic expression. In different ages and dif in different social milieus, this expression has changed. That is to say, men have feared death in different ways. And nevertheless, what was said on this score, not only by Shakespeare, Byron, Goethe and the psalmist can move us. And I think what he's saying is that art can be expression of common experiences and emotions um, that we experience uh, in underclass systems. So give a bit of a backdrop to um, you know, when Picasso painted Guernica. And he, he painted this during the Spanish Civil War. So the Spanish Civil War, um, for people who don't know, was really a, uh, an epic revolution by ordinary people in Spain to defend... Um, the Republican government um, in Spain in 1936 against the takeover by fascist forces led by General Franco. Um, it was, you know, a, a revolution that captured the imagination um, and, and spirit of opposition to fascism across the world. For example, leftists, even from Australia, joined, went over to Spain and Madrid to fight um, in the international brigades against fascism. Um, and Guernica was uh, the, heart, the historical heartland and meeting point of uh, an oppressed group within Spain um, you know, who want national determination, the Basque people. And on, uh, during the Spanish Civil War, on 26th of April 1937, the Junkers, and Italian Savoyers flew straight over the main town of Guernica, dropping splinter bombs and incendiaries. Within three hours, the town was a skeleton and over 1,600 people um, dead. And this bombing was part of Spanish fa fascist General Franco's campaign to crush um, all the forces of the left and resistance to his seizure of power. And five days later, in Paris, um, Picasso began to sketch the figures of the painting that would keep um, Guernica alive in minds of successive generations. 
But if you look at the painting, there is no specific reference to firebombing um, in the painting, um, and not even to the Spanish Civil War or the Spanish Revolution. And the figures in the painting appear timeless. And they have a monumental, almost classical power. So to the left, you have a Madonna and child, which is a familiar pairing, but they're broken, terrified. The woman is screaming, the child's neck probably broken. And on the other side of the canvas, another woman screams, and between them, faces and bodies are running. And all the pain, the anguish of the work is centred on the twisted horse at the centre of, um, of the painting. And the painting is in black, white and shades of grey, um, which is a dramatic contrast to the com complex use of colour in Picasso's earlier work. And I think the effect is to make it more universal, permanent and enduring. So we, we, I think we relate in successive generations to Guernica, not because it is specifically just about Spain or what happened to Guernica, but about the horror and pain that we experience under capitalism and under modern war. Um, and the ancient capital of the Basque nation with the ancient tree where its first parliaments met marked the route for successive generations to atrocities in Dresden, in Hiroshima, in Fallujah. Um, on 6th of August 1945, the US dropped the atom bomb on Hiroshima in Japan. This killed 100,000 people immediately and another 100,000 through a slow, painful death over the following year. Um, in, between 1964 and 1971, the US dropped 373,000 tonnes of napalm on Vietnam. Um, and napalm is a chemical used to um, burn and strip away people's skin. The US also, also dropped almost 500,000 cluster bombs, small canisters containing many smaller bombs. And cluster bombs have also been widely used by British and US forces in Iraq and Afghanistan. I think when we were growing up, the bombing of Fallujah in Iraq in November 2004 became a Guernica that radicalised a new generation, a symbol etched in the minds of millions of the barbarism of war. Um, and the US, assisted particularly by the British Army, systematically destroyed the Iraq town, Iraqi town of Fallujah. And of course, the current war in Iraq highlights the same experience of horror and destruction, where at least 100,000 have died on both sides. The West has armed Ukraine to the teeth with state-of-the-art artillery, which allows it to launch precision attacks deep into Russian-held areas. And there's no doubt, um, I think Guernica is an example, that art can be a highly political way to express and relate to life and experiences under capitalism and, co and convey the horrors of our system. And, you know, for those who say that, um, you know, artworks aren't political, um, Picasso was a member of the French Communist Party until his death in 1973, and strongly argue that artists and, um, artists and art under capitalism is political. Um, just to take a quote uh, from Picasso. What do you think an artist is? An imbecile who, if he is a painter, has only eyes? If he's a mu musician, has only ears? If he's a poet, has a liar in each chamber of his heart? Or even if he's a boxer, just muscles? On the contrary, he's at the same time a political being, constantly alert to the heart-rendering stirring or unpleasant events of the world. How would it be possible to disassociate yourself from other men? By virtue of what ivory nonchalance should you distance yourself from life that they abundantly bring before you? Painting is not made to decorate apartments. However, I think despite Picasso's words, um, you know, and, and the work of a lot of left-wing artists and activists, artists come up constantly against the, the, the reality of the capitalist system. And I think fundamentally, um, art comes from the ideas, uh, reflects and is controlled by the ideas of the ruling class. Um, and Marx finally said the ruling, you know, ruling ideas are the ideas of the ruling class. 
Um, and art forms part of a superstructure, um, you know, as Martin Engels explains, superstructure of culture under capitalism, which is not se separately from our explo exploitation that we experience day to day in the workplace as wage labourers, um, as workers. But actually, you know, the culture has to reflect that system and justify the system, um, exploitative system in which we um, live in. So artists are not only alienated from their work if they attempt to survive through selling, commodifying their art, but also what gains popularity in art is controlled by the ruling class through their power and money. And I think as capitalism has gone on as well, uh, the ruling class has found it useful to try and use art to control ideology and, use, um, you know, and pursue its own um, interests within the ideology of the system. And on one level, I think this is a big surprise, you know, in terms of visual art installations, the massive, you know, art, uh, the privilege and the, the kind of money and cost of creating and storing visual art and installations and, and uh, maintaining galleries. So to give you, uh, I think, a bit of an example of these contradictions, um, probably my favourite gallery is in New York, the Museum of Modern Art, um, which was developed at the outset of the Great Depression by the Rockefellers. So John Rockefeller Sr. was an American business magnate. He's been widely considered the wealthiest American of all time and the richest person in modern history. Um, and MoMA contains one of the most spectacular collections of um, not only modern art, but avant-garde art. The Rockefellers were big fans of radical artists at the time, including Diego Rivera. So if people don't know, Rivera was one of the most famous uh, Mexican artists who was a big proponent of public installation, murals, art, um, you know, in public spaces. You know, he famously said, if art is not revolutionary, it is not art. There's no doubt that there is a benefit to the ruling class controlling art, uh, but there's also massive contradiction within the creation and production of art. Um, so just to give an example, um, Man at the Crossroads um, in 1934 was a fresco by Diego Rivera and it was intended for, to be in New York City's Rockefeller Centre. And the commissions are often a way that Rivera and other artists at the time, like his, uh, people might know his um, partner during much of his life, Frida Kahlo, made a living and survived. So this is not a uh, comment on I think this is an amazing mural. And it was originally slated to be installed in the lobby of 30 Rockefeller Plaza um, to, to show aspects of contemporary social and scientific culture. Um, and the Rockefeller family first approved of the mural's idea to show the contrast of, you know, capitalism to uh, communism. However, after the media started complaining about the piece, calling it anti-capitalist propaganda, um, Rivera responded by adding images of Vladimir Lenin, a rev Russian revolutionary, and a Soviet May Day parade in the corner in response. And when these were discovered, Rockefeller then wanted Rivera to remove the portrait of, of, um, of Lenin, but Rivera was unwilling to do so. And in May 1933, Rockefeller ordered the mural to be plastered over and destroyed before it was finished, resulting in protests and boycotts from other artists. But using that photograph, Rivera painted the composition in Mexico under a variant title, Man Controller of the Universe. And I just wanted to use this as an example of, you know, an amazing mural, amazing piece of art, but how money, power and control dominates um, art in our, our system um, and is largely subject to the control and ideas of the ruling class. And artists end up um, often in a very contradictory position within our system trying to make art, um, and particularly revolutionary art. And given, you know, I think the suppression of creativity and art in our system, um, it's really no surprise that with the suppression of creativity under capitalism, during revolutions, we really see the bursting forth of um, you know, ways of art when people get a sense of their ability, um, of their power and ability to, sh to shape society.
from below. Um, in particular, I wanted to look at the, um, the Russian Revolution. So the Russian Revolution in 1917 unleashed a huge cultural explosion, first for literature, art, theatre, that had been denied um, to the working class and poor um, under Tsarist Russia. And John Reed's amazing account of the Russian Revolution, um, in 10 days it shook the world, describes this process. The thirst for education, so long thwarted, burst with the revolution into a frenzy of expression. From the Smolny Institute alone, the first six months went out every ton, everyday tons, car loads, train loads of literature saturating the land. Russia absorbed reading matter like hot sand drinks, insatiable. Um, and before the revolution, they already developed um, groups of angry artists who came up against the stultified art of the, of the academy that dominated last years of the Tsarist um, monarchy. Um, the artists set out to radically redefine um, art, going beyond even new radical art movements um, like cubism, futurism and expressionism. And I think they're loosely made up of what's kind of known as the Russian avant-garde, um, so it includes people like Russian futurist poet Mayakovsky, visual artist, uh, visual artist Malevich, along with constructivist um, artists like Rodchenko, theatre worker Mayer Hold, um, and many other people in this milieu in Russia. And the artists, including you know, Bolshevik artists, embraced the workers' revolution of October as a liberator of art. You know, for example, in response to the Russian Revolution, um, El Lissitsi, who um, made this poster, when the bullets were whistling through the streets of Moscow, um, hurried to see the committee for art set up by the soldiers' deputies to obtain orders necessary for undertaking the beginning of effective artistic propaganda work. Um, and this is, I think, one of the most famous Bolshevik propaganda posters, Beat the Whites with the Red Wedge. And in the poster, the intrusive Red Wedge symbolises the Bolsheviks who are penetrating and defeating their opponents, the white movement of counter-revolution during the Russian Civil War. And Bolshevik poet Vladimir Mayakovsky told artists, let us make the squares our palettes, the streets our brushes. They produce posters and decorations of pageants, street theatre, agitprop, trains and boats to take education and art to the furthest uh, reaches of the Russian Empire. And within this period, enormous debates took place over the nature of revolutionary art. What is the relationship between art and life? Should we set out to construct a worker's art or do we need to create human art? What is the relationship between art and machine? And the re revolution began a process of collectivising creative life. Um, so mass events employing crowds were a key element in, st in street theatre and experimental music with industrial sounds, for those electronica fans. Um, so for the first time, art became like any other working job, like engineering or teaching. Um, art became seen as a productive part of society and creative potential prioritised for public good. Um, so like other Bolshevik artists, um, pictured here Arseny Avramov's uh, early life revolved around writing music and getting arrested for communist agitation. Um, and after the Russian Revolution, he was appointed culture minister for the People's Commissariat for Education. And a radical first act was to ask Lenin if he could burn all the pianos in the country, considering them symbols of the old um, political and musical order. Uh, I'm not sure about this, but Lenin's answer is not recorded, though the continued existence of pianos in Russia suggests that his proposal was not taken up. <laughs> So Symphony of Sirens, a musical work, incorporated the whole city of Baku as its orchestra. It was staged on 7th of November 1922 to celebrate the five-year anniversary of the October Revolution and included the entire Caspian flotilla, cannons, <laughs> locomotives, artillery regiments, hydroplanes, factory sirens, fa bells, falcons, brass bands and a massive choir. 
Um, so, you know, the idea from Avramov was, was that he wasn't just conducting an orchestra, he was involving ordinary people in conducting a city for everyone to be involved in music. Um, and just a side note, you can find some great reconstructions of uh, the Symphony of Sirens on YouTube. And the Bolsheviks made artistic and cultural development a top priority. One of the first acts of the new government in 1917 was the establishment of Narkompros, the People's Commissariat for Enlightenment, headed by Bolshevik Anatoly Lunacharsky, and charged with the task of launching mass um, literacy and education. In 1918, Lunacharsky established the Free State Art Schools in place of the old Tsarist Art Academy. The new art schools were tuition-free and open to anybody. They not only taught all shades of artistic practice, from academic realism to cubism and futurism, but students had the final say in which teachers would be hired through a vote. All kinds of uh, debates were taken up in the studios with an emphasis on the freedom to experiment. And I think it's no coincidence that the victory of the counter-revolution by Stalin, uh, by Joseph Stalin, resulted in him denouncing the avant-garde of the Russian revolution, revolution and forcing a return to realism, which he called socialist realism, um, which really was a return of the conservatism of only being able to paint things as the way that they are. Um, and in 1932, uh, Stalin closed down the Independent Artists' Union um, and avant-garde artists were, uh, had to adapt to Stalin's regime or risk being blacklisted. And Trotsky, at the time, amongst all the other things he was writing, wrote a manifesto for an independent revolutionary art with Andre Breton and Diego Rivera artists. As Stalin reached the heart of this process of clamping down on the avant-garde artists. And so they wrote in this manifesto, Every progressive tendency in art is destroyed by fascism as degenerate. Every free creation is called fascist by the Stalinists. Independent revolutionary art must now gather its forces for the struggle against reactionary persecution. It must proclaim aloud the right to exist. Such a union of forces is the aim of the International Federation of Independent Revolutionary Art, which we believe it is now necessary to form. Unfortunately, they were not successful in their fight until the bitter end against Stalin. Without spreading internationally, despite all the efforts of artists, Bolsheviks, workers, the Russian Revolution um, was defeated. I just wanted to finish with some of the amazing um, street art from the Egyptian Revolution in 2011. Um, when workers and students took to Tahrir Square in the centre of Cairo to wage a revolution that overthrew the dictator Hosni Mubarak. Um, and in, this is just one of the examples of um, the graffiti and street art at the time, but um, in protesting the blockades of the square, artists created these beautiful murals of collective art. And this has been given the name, uh, the street has also been given, aptly given the name No Wall Street. The graffiti piece is the work of the Revolutionary Artists Association, um, a group of young Egyptian artists who say that the uprising continues. And up, uprising and revolutions in the Middle East and other unexpected parts of the world will continue and throw up, I think, a potential for human creativity and real liberation. And I think it's, there's no doubt that the role of Marxists to champion this right and the fight for a world where art is not a contradictory practice, but one where creativity is not only part of day-to-day -day life, but develops, I think, beyond the boundaries of our current imagination and this commodified and alienating system of capitalism.